Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. And we will look at the parable of the landowner this morning. I love that hymn. And uh, you notice that the author of it talked about trials and sorrows and being buffeted. Yeah, Christians have sorrows. Christians get buffeted. They cry. But, as he said in that that hymn, we remember that Jesus Christ shed his blood for our sins, and that's permanent, that's forever. And that's the difference between someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't. So let me recommend him to you if you don't know him. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33, Jesus is speaking. He says, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. I love this passage. I love the word of God. Do you love the word of God? Man, it's great. And uh, this passage we just read is one of the pivotal sections in the Bible. It looks innocuous enough, but really uh, it indicates an incredible shift in the dealings of God with men. And in fact, as Jesus says these words, he is in the process of doing what he is saying. He is literally, think about it, taking the kingdom of God away from the Jews and he's giving it to the Gentiles and in particular the church. And now you sit and you say, oh, that's interesting theology. Let me tell you, that's a major event. That's that's like a a crack in the earth's crust. And in fact, we are living 
in that era today. Here we are sitting around, mostly a bunch of smiling Gentiles, you know, preaching the word of God from a book written by Jews. It wasn't always like that. In fact, for 2,000 years, it had been the nation of Israel, starting with the call of Abraham, all the way up until this day. God had never, ever indicated that he was going to do something like this. Now, he had threatened judgment before uh, of taking them into captivity when they disobeyed him. But that's done with. That's already happened and they've been returned. But this idea of God reaching out and taking the privileges, that's, that's what the kingdom of God, when he says he, he's taking away the kingdom of God, it means the privileges and responsibilities of uh, preaching God's word and being a light to the world. He never indicated that he was going to do that. Take it away from them and give it to the Gentiles. So, uh, just in case you don't uh, pick up on everything that's going on, let me just explain it. The landowner, therefore, is who in this passage? It's God. Who are the vine dressers? You, Jews, nation of Israel. Who are the servants that he sent? Prophets. Exactly. Who's the son? Very good. And so the vineyard, it represents the kingdom of God. Jesus says that in the parable. He's going to take the kingdom of God away. Pardon me, the vineyard. And then later he says the kingdom of God will be taken away. It's the place of spiritual privilege and responsibility in the eyes of God. And the nation that will bear its fruits are the Gentiles in general and in particular the church. So this this is a cataclysmic event. And what I love about this is you can actually go through the scripture now, realizing what Jesus says he's doing, and you can watch him do it. You can literally see him do what he says he's doing. And we're going to do that. And we're going to see what it took for God to be able to turn that corner, so to speak, and go from uh, the Jews being the caretakers of the word of God, so to speak, and transferring it to the Gentiles. It's one thing for Jesus to say it in a parable. It's quite another to accomplish it historically among people, let me tell you. You think the Jews are ready for this? No. They, they don't expect it. And even though he tells them to their face, they don't believe it. So... Um, well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to see this worked out in the word of God. And it also helps explain a number of very unusual events uh, and passages in the Bible. If you if you see what's going on here now. Um, I mentioned to John uh, to Don before I preach this, I got to uh, preach Daniel 70 weeks. I'd love to do that, but I can't. I just don't have the time. Daniel 70 weeks. It has its roots in four verses in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. Another one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible, because it predicts to the day that Jesus will come riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. That's isn't that great. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, uh, infidels, unbelievers, 
love to say, oh, Daniel, you know, forget it. That's not a valid prophecy. It was written a 100 years after Jesus. Until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found that it was written 100 years before Jesus. Same thing with Isaiah 53. They said that about Isaiah and then they found this beautiful uh, leather ram skin scroll of Isaiah. And there you can read it right there. Written 200 years before Jesus. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. You know, right there. So let me just say... Uh, Boy, I'm going to summarize the 70 weeks of Daniel in a few sentences here. Daniel prophesied 70 weeks for the nation of Israel. It goes like this. He said, 70 weeks or literally 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. He said that to Daniel. Okay. What's 70 times seven? 490. Okay. Now, um, he later is going to say, that it's going to be 69 weeks from a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So 69 weeks is seven short of 70. So it's 483. And obviously, it's not, he's not talking about weeks of days. Is he? Or is he? <laughs> it's, it's roughly years. Uh, and so, you can do the math. You can work it out. It comes out to 173,880 days if you use Revelation to find the key for the length of a year. The bottom line is that prophecy, the 69 weeks, almost all the 70 weeks except for one of them, ended right on the day before we read this passage. That is when Jesus came riding in on the donkey. Okay. And by the way, that's that's why look at look at the beginning of the chapter there. That's why you have this very unusual passage. Think about it, how strange that is. He tells the disciples, now there's a certain place over there. There's a guy that has a donkey. Now you go get that donkey. Nobody's ever ridden on it before. And you just bring it to me. And he gets up on the donkey and he comes riding into Jerusalem. Isn't that weird? He's never done anything like that. In fact, uh, in the book of John in chapter six, you know, they were going to take him and make him king. You remember what he did? He, he got away from there. He said, forget it. He, uh, when he healed people, what did he tell them? Shh, don't go, don't, don't go spreading it around. It's almost like he was seeking anonymity. Here, he comes riding in on a donkey of all things into the city of Jerusalem. They lay down the palm leaves and they say, Hosanna, you know, uh, welcome, and it's a prophecy of Zechariah's, behold your king riding on a donkey, lowly. So the point is, Jesus uh, picked that donkey out and sat on it when the 69 weeks of Daniel ran out to the day. That, that's great. Isn't that incredible? And, and there's one week left now to tick out for the nation of Israel. Now, when you read the prophecy in Daniel, you think, <clears throat> okay, well, right after the donkey should be like seven more years, and that's the end of Israel. God, in order to accomplish his purposes, hid what he was going to do in the Old Testament in various ways. And one of the ways he would do it was he would talk about Jesus coming as if he was only going to come one time. 
The problem is the prophets would read about that and they would see uh, that the Messiah being described as suffering, even dying. But then you turn right around and it talks about him, him ruling over Israel and uh, Israel being the head of the nations and so on. And they couldn't understand how he can do both. Well, we know today, now, be thankful you're living now, by the way. There's so much we understand that Jesus is coming twice. And the first time he came was deliberately to suffer. Praise God. Aren't you glad that God sent his son not just to be a king of the Jews? Where would we be? Man, he did a lot bigger thing than that. He sent his son to die for the sins of the world so that you and I could go to heaven. And that's what he accomplished the first time. Let me tell you, if Jesus came the first time to do the hard stuff, he's going to come the second time. (laughs) He has to. Okay? If you don't know Jesus and you're not ready for him, you need to get ready by coming to him. So, uh, so we've already talked about the triumphal entry. Let me just uh, review it for you. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me and so on. And he sits on the donkey and he goes in. Okay. Now, that ends the 70 weeks of Daniel. The clock has literally stopped. Pardon me, the 69. The clock has literally stopped ticking and there's still one week to go for the nation of Israel. Right now, there is still one week to go, what, seven years for the nation of Israel. And I think it's going to be very soon. Okay, It'll happen when the church is gone. All right. You follow that? Pretty fairly clear. Okay. The interesting thing, the rest of Daniel's prophecy or some of it, it says after the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, crucified. And it's exactly as it was prophesied after the 69 weeks, then actually four days later, he was crucified. This is Monday. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's crucified on Friday. And so really, there are two great events that occur right in this same little short period of time. The crucifixion of the Son of God by the Jews and the rejection of the Jews by God himself. And literally laying them aside. Now I said we can see them acted out. For example. uh, Here in chapter 21. Verse 18. He's made the triumphal entry. They've laid the palm leaves. And the scribes and Pharisees have complained about it. They don't like the idea that Jesus came riding in. And the people said things like this. He left them in verse 17, went out of the city. And now here's another one of those really strange events. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And he goes on to explain about if they had faith, they could do the same thing. Okay, 
So here's Jesus going around killing fig trees. Does that sound like the Jesus you know? I mean, for an ordinary behavior? No. What he's doing is something very symbolic. It's symbolic of what we heard in the parable. He is symbolically judging the nation of Israel in the form of the fig tree. He came to the fig tree. He wanted fruit. What did he get? Leaves. You know, lots of leaves. External show, but nothing really good. You know, we want fruit, not leaves. Outward show. He came to the nation of Israel. He expected fruit just like the landowner expected fruit. And he came to the nation and all he saw was leaves. No fruit. So there's a parallel there with no fruit. Okay? So this wasn't just some random act of violence. Jesus is illustrating what he is doing right now. He is judging the nation of Israel and setting them aside. You follow that? Isn't that cool? Otherwise, you know, Jesus is going around killing fig trees. Doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, we're just going to have to hit the highlights here. From 21, chapter 21 through 24, there are all kinds of little incidents and, and words that indicate, imagine, this is Jesus. This Jesus is Jehovah walking in the midst of the nation of Israel, performing an act of judgment and talking about it. So in chapter 23, uh, verses, we're just going to look at the end of it, 27 through 36. This is the chapter of the woes on the Pharisees, representative of the nation of Israel. It's probably the most scathing chapter in the Bible, certainly one of the most scathing chapters in the Bible. And he is pronouncing judgment upon the religious leaders of the nation. Um, we'll just begin reading in verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Wow. I'll tell you, my ears are burning after that. But it's Jesus acting out, as I said, what he said he was doing. He is judging the nation. Notice his mention again of the killing of the prophets. Remember what was in the parable. The servants that were sent, that the vine dressers killed. It's still on his mind. He's reviewing the nation's history. 
Isaiah is reputed to have been put into a hollow tree and they cut it in half with him inside. They killed the prophets in brutal ways, rejected them. And it's just remarkable. Here we see him now he, as Jehovah reviewing the history of this nation. And as he does so, his heart breaks. Look at verse 37. He's speaking now as God and listen to the heart of God as it breaks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. In the midst of judgment, his heart still breaks as he reviews the history. And think about it. He's talking as God here. As he remembers the prophets that he sent as Jehovah and what they did. And he's saying all during that time how I wanted to hold you close to my heart. But you didn't want any part of it. And ends again in a firm statement of the judgment that he is performing. I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say there's the word of hope, by the way, until. Remember what he said about the fig tree? He said no fruit anymore. And it sounds like like, you know, the amillennialists and so many others of the uh, Christian community out there. Yeah, God's done with Israel, you know. The church has replaced them permanently. And then they try to go back to the Old Testament and take all these thousands of promises literally to the nation of Israel and somehow try to spiritualize them and apply them to the church. And you read 10 of their commentators for a passage and you get 10 different meanings for it. Those are literal promises which will be fulfilled until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when he says you won't see me, of course they're going to see him. They're going to see him the next three days, four days. But they're not going to see him. They refuse to see him as their Messiah. And so they will not see him as their Messiah until that day. Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will literally God says they will mourn for me as one mourns for uh, his only son. He flips the you uh, him and the me there. And it's clear that Jesus is Jehovah there. Okay. Um, Now, it's interesting to me that uh, as Jesus has brought the 69 weeks to a close and he's laying the nation aside, that his thoughts turn to that final week that's still left. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you've just left high school and you're looking forward to the first reunion, you know. Um, because the whole next chapter is devoted to that 70th week, which is yet to come. Uh, It's seven years, 360 days each. The first half is called the tribulation. The last half is called the great tribulation. Unless you've been living in a cave for the last 40 years, you've heard about the Antichrist and the terrible things that are predicted in the Bible that are going to happen in the last days. Well, it's that period. And the worst period 
is the last half of that week, three and a half years. And so it's like Jesus is still thinking about those 70 weeks as if they were contiguous, 69 and then that last week. Because, and it's just incredible how the disciples set him up with a question. Because they're walking down Jerusalem and they come near the temple and they say, oh, wow, you know, look at these great buildings. And Jesus says, there's not going to be one stone left on another, which happened in 70 A.D. And so listen to the question they ask him in verse three of chapter 24. They go out of the city, they get to the Mount of Olives and they come to him privately and they say, "Uh, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Wow. They don't realize it, but they're saying the right words here. It's it's not going to happen immediately. So far, it's 2000 years. Uh since he first said these words. But he answers them. And in the chapter here, if you've got a red letter edition, which is just about all you can get nowadays, hard to get an all black print Bible. But uh, you see, it's all red. Jesus is doing all the talking here and he's talking about the end times. And in verses uh, four through 14, he's talking about the first half, all the terrible things that are happening in the first roughly six chapters of Revelation. And then he makes a transition. In verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and so on. And he goes on and basically says, you need to get out of there. Because this signals the beginning of the great tribulation when The Antichrist, empowered by the devil, is going to go after the nation of Israel big time. He's going to try to wipe them out. And God is going to have a place of safety in the wilderness. And when we think of the wilderness, we think of a bunch of bushes and trees. The wilderness here is is desert and rocks and canyons and caves uh, in the southeast of of Israel. Another interesting thing here, notice, of all the prophecies to refer to, Jesus goes back to Daniel chapter 9 and uh, Daniel chapter 12 as well. Why does he tell them to get out of there? Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Is that scary or what? He says, you don't want to be there. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Uh, And then so there's three and a half years of terrible, terrible calamity, because while the devil is going after the nation of Israel, God is pouring out judgment on the earth. You know, people make jokes about the end is near and they have the guy in the sandals and the beard. And the, and the uh, sign and so on. Let me tell you, it's real. It, the earth is straining under sin. God can't let that keep going on. He has to judge the world. He must. Or he'd be an unrighteous God. He'd be a liar. And he's not. And that's what's going to happen in the last three and a half years. Wow, it's going to be terrible. <clears throat> but here's the good news for the Jews at that time and the the saved Gentiles as well who are suffering under all of this. 
and for the church who was in heaven with Jesus at that time, waiting to come back with him. In uh, verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see, think of this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You got that? Everybody is going to see Jesus when he comes in glory. That's going to be quite a sight. And if you don't know Jesus, it's going to be the worst day of your life. There's going to be a feeling grip in the pit of your stomach like you've never had before because it's too late. If if you know Jesus now, you're not going to be there. You're going to be coming with him. It's going to be a moment of victory. It's going to be singing like you've never heard before. Okay. Um, I'd love to go on in Matthew, but we're already getting low on time. Just look at John uh, chapter 12 real quick. John adds an interesting little event on this same day where Jesus literally takes the kingdom of God away from the Jews and begins to give it to the Gentiles. Really, the act of giving it to the Gentiles is going to take a while because the Jews aren't going to accept it. And in the early church, how many how many Gentiles were saved on the day of Pentecost? (laughs) None that I know of. The, The early church was all Jews. And But here we are today, in this local church anyway, basically all Gentiles. How do we get from there to here? It wasn't easy. <laughs> and we'll see uh, how it worked out. <clears throat> but here's another event on the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. It's the same day here in John 12. And it's a very interesting uh, episode. Verse 20. <clears throat> Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These guys are Gentiles, Greeks. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. They're going, uh, I don't think so. These guys are Gentiles. We better go ask the Lord. You know, what, what should we do here? Listen to Jesus' response. But Jesus answered them saying, notice what Jesus says here is in response to their request to let these Gentiles see him. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. How does that answer their question? Is there any connection? There's a big connection. This appearance of the Gentiles requesting to see Jesus is it's like a signal. It's indicating afresh that God is turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. And by the Gentiles coming and demonstrating an interest, it's just foreshadowing now the future for the next 2000 years of the Gentiles being in the center of God's dealings. By the way, uh, you want a little Bible study, go through the book of John. This phrase, 
the hour has has come is unique in that before this point it's like a half a dozen times where jesus keeps saying my hour has not yet come in fact it starts in chapter two at canaan of galilee when mary comes to him and says they have a problem they ran out of wine and he says my hour has not yet come and he says that over and over through the gospel of john until this moment when the gentiles come and request an interview it's signaling his uh, crucifixion and the rejection of the nation of Israel. They're one and the same uh, event. <clears throat> okay. Well, that's all well and good. Jesus is uh, laying the nation of Israel aside and turning to the Gentiles now. And here we've been for 2,000 years. By, by the way, that's very interesting to me. And we're not going to predict dates here. Okay, so Relax. But it is interesting that the nation of Israel, starting with the call of Abraham until the rejection here in about 33 A.D., it's almost exactly 2,000 years. You know how long the church has been around? 2,000 years. If, if God is an equal opportunity employer, I'll tell you, and forget the 2,000 years, just with the signs of the strain on the world right now, we can't go much longer until Jesus snatches away the church and starts that last seven years ticking. I'll tell you. I keep waking up every day thinking, man, this has got to be the day Jesus is coming. And then, praise God, after the seven years, we'll have a thousand, another thousand years, this time with Jesus ruling. Oh, man, that's going to be so sweet. Can you imagine Jesus ruling over the earth? Yeah, it's heaven on earth. Okay, so uh, if we had hours, we could go through uh, watching God trying to turn the corner of taking the kingdom of God away from the Jews and giving it to the, the Gentiles via the church. But we'll just look at uh, one passage and mention others. And it's with Peter, of course. Peter is always the, the great example of things. Chapter 10. Until this point, here we are, 10 chapters into the book of Acts. God has turned the corner, but the Israel hasn't. The Jews haven't. The church at this point is all Jewish. No Gentiles. That's the way it's always been. Gentiles are unclean. For 2,000 years, you know, the word for them is dogs. All right? And so God starts with good old Peter to break the ice. Um, beginning in verse uh, 28. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Uh, Peter is, um, I think he's at uh, Joppa. Um, no, no, pardon uh, says No, yeah, Joppa. And... Uh, Peter's had a vision from God. I've already skipped the vision. God gave him a vision three times because he wants to get the message through to him. And the vision is this sheet coming down with all these unclean animals on it. You're familiar with it. And three times God tells Peter, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And they're all unclean animals. And being a good Jew, he says, not, no, Lord. Uh, Peter's classic line, you know, not so, Lord, right? Contradiction in terms. Um, 
And, and of course, God is trying to show Peter, look, what you've been calling unclean up until this point, it's not unclean anymore. And he's talking about the Gentiles. Peter doesn't know that yet. But he's about to find out because just as the vision ends and he comes downstairs, these guys arrive from a Gentile named Cornelius who wants to know about Jesus. And so he sends word to Peter and God tells uh, Peter, look, don't hesitate to go with these guys. We know they came uh, from a Gentile, but don't you worry about that. You just go. Now, this is grading on Peter and we're going to see that. Okay. Remember, God's trying to get Peter to turn the corner here, right? At least to accept Gentiles. So, uh, verse 28, Peter gets there to Cornelius's house, and I can just see it, you know, Cornelius has got his whole family. Peter, the great apostle, is coming today. I want everybody to pay attention while he speaks. Before he says anything, verse 28, Peter says, um, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. He's reminding Cornelius, I shouldn't be here. You, you see that? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, just because Peter says those words doesn't mean he's not continuing to struggle with this. He's just like us. Okay, wouldn't it be nice if we learned our lessons once? People people wonder, why does Jesus repeat himself about certain subjects in the Gospels? That's because we need to hear it again. Well, uh, so he reminds Cornelius before he does anything, I shouldn't be here. Okay, but here I am because God sent me. And he begins to preach Christ. He gets uh, to... The uh, punchline, which is, if you believe in him, your sins are forgiven. In verse 43, then verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. They were saved. That's the mark of salvation. Ephesians 1, we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we believed. Now, Did they see the Holy Spirit falling on them? No. How did Peter know that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit then and were saved? Well, it goes on. First of all, verse 45, and those of the circumcision, that's Peter and his friends, who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know they had the Holy Spirit poured onto them? Verse 46, four, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's it. Did you catch that? Now, they didn't go. They weren't babbling. Uh, Speaking in tongues in the Bible is speaking in a foreign language. You can find a list of them in Acts chapter two. They were speaking in a foreign language. The important thing is the same thing happened to the Gentiles as happened to the Jews the day they believed. And they could see it. You understand? And if God is going to give them the Holy Spirit, what are they going to do? They can't, they can't fight it. But they see clearly that God has treated the Gentiles exactly the same way he treated them. And they're astonished. They're shocked. They're learning 
but they're still going to be struggling with it. You, you following this? Okay. Now, if we had time, guys, when I've met with a guy, he knows that we, it takes us about, uh, five or six days to go over all this stuff. One of the subjects we cover is, uh, speaking in tongues because this is where it fits. It was a very unusual gift. It was a redundant gift. It was the same as prophecy, which is declaring the word of God, except that it was a cousin removed because when someone spoke the word of God in a foreign language, you had to have somebody who interpret. And that's why all over chapter 14, Paul says, look, better to prophecy, prophesy, speak in the language everybody understands. And then he says in that chapter, <clears throat> the tongues were given as a sign to the Jews. As a sign of judgment to them. And in fact, after they gotten the message, that's why the, the gift itself died out. It was unnecessary. It was redundant. Prophecy. Speaking the word of God was the primary gift that God gave. The verse he quotes in chapter 14 of uh, 1 Corinthians, he, he says, with men of another language, I will speak to these people. In Isaiah, which that is quoted from, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he's saying, when you get hauled off by Assyria into a foreign country and you wake up hearing this language you don't understand, in this case, Assyrian, you're going to know. I judged you. It's a reminder to you. Isn't that, isn't that cool? He applied it then at this time to indicate this new act of judgment where he had laid them aside and turned to the Gentiles. And that's what the gift was for. Of course, now, the Jews, when they heard this, the unsaved Jews just, you know, ignored it. But it was useful too for the Believing Jews like Peter when they heard this because it was confirmation to them that these Gentiles were saved just like they were and on the same footing as they were. Sort of. It's still going to take them a while. Well, Peter's not through. I, I wish you could imagine what it would be like to be in Peter's shoes at this time. He's got to go back now to Jerusalem <laughs> and explain what he just did. He went to Gentiles. You understand? That's a no-no. Look at verse uh, two of chapter or three of chapter eleven. <clears throat> he comes to Jerusalem, and they come up to him, and they say, "You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. What's wrong with you?" And so Peter goes through the whole thing—the vision of the sheets, and so on. And then, verse 17, at the end of his explanation, he says, If, therefore, God gave them the same gift, what's that? The Holy Spirit, along with the speaking in tongues. As he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. Who was I that I could withstand God? Amen. <laughs> When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying that then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And you'd like to close your Bible and say, ah, praise God. That chapter's over. Well, read Galatians chapter two. Much later, Paul tells us we wouldn't know this unless he put it in Galatians. They were up uh, eating a dinner at I think it was Antioch. Paul was there and Peter came up from Jerusalem to join the party. And he brought some uh, 
fellow believing Jews with him. By this time, there were Gentiles in the church, believing Gentiles there. You know what Peter did when it came to dinner time? The, the Gentiles are sitting over here. Peter comes in and he goes, whoa, and he goes over here. And he sits down and has his meal, you know, kind of at a safe distance. Is that good? That's not what God wants. And so Paul says, I rebuked Peter to his face. Because by that uh, apparently innocent act, he was teaching that somehow the Jews have something up on the Gentiles. You have to do something more to be saved than just believe in Jesus. Like be a Jew, be circumcised maybe. So I'm not bad-mouthing Peter. I'm just saying he was a man like you and me. Okay, he still struggled with it. And look, Paul is not uh, Lily White himself. He's the apostle to whom? You look in the book of Acts. Do you know where he goes? Whenever he goes to a city? And And I'm not blaming him. The synagogue. Yeah, to the Jews. And he tries talking to them, and they all tell him to get lost. And every time you see him saying, all right, okay, that's it. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. He turns right around and goes in the synagogue in the next city. And you know why? Read chapters uh, 9, 10, 11 in Romans. His heart for his people was unbelievable. He just loved his people so much. He, he, he couldn't go anywhere else. And so he was constantly going back uh, to the Jews. Well, what's it going to take for God to be able to really do what Jesus said he was doing Back there in the parable we started with. How is he going to get there? This is the way he's going to get there. By uh, revealing, inspiring a man of God to write it down and have it preserved in his word. And uh, the main place it is, we're going to have to finish on this. I have tons of other stuff I'd like to give you. But just look at it because every time I read this, it's in Ephesians. Chapter two, it just it thrills me to no end. The way God talks about this incredible revolution in his dealing with mankind. This is Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, writing about this very thing we've been talking about. Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, therefore. Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. The both there is Jew and Gentile, you see. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. There was a literal wall that the Jews set up. In the uh, temple, the, the men, Jewish men, could go to the inner court. They could get right up to the temple. The ladies could not go there. There was the court of the women, which was the next boundary outside. But outside that, there was a wall. 
And in fact, they've actually, the archaeologists have found one in uh, Capernaum that's still there and it's got the engraving on it. Gentiles pass this point upon pain of death. If you were a seeking Gentile and you went to a place like that, you had to stop at that wall and you couldn't go any further. There was a literal wall of separation. Part of the problem of that was that in that very outer court called the court of the Gentiles is guess what? That's where the money changers were. That's where all the bleeding goats and the mooing oxen and whatever animals they had were kept to do all the trading. So you're a seeking Gentile and you, and that's as close as you can get. And you got all this noise and, and uh, business going on. Jesus broke that down. All gone. And now, we and Jews who believe in Jesus Christ can go right on past that wall, the next wall, the next one, into the temple, into the holy place, into the holy of holies. Isn't that great? And it was at a great price when Jesus died. That big veil that separated that inner place, representing the presence of God, that separated even uh, the best of Jews except for one man from coming into the presence of God was torn from top to bottom. And now we can go in. And, and Paul goes on to say that as he talks about uh, this incredible thing that God has done. <clears throat> and we'll finish it up in chapter 3 here of Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation... Don't use that word lightly. He's he's saying God spoke to me and and showed me this. He made known to me the mystery, something that was hidden before. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Nobody knew God was going to do this. As it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. I got this framed in red in my Bible with a red pen that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Amen. Those are earth shattering words. And we're enjoying it today because of the grace of God. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our, our thoughts. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so are your ways above our ways and your thoughts above our thoughts. It looked for the longest time that all you were going to do was to send a Jewish king to rule over that nation. We praise you, Lord, that your plan was much greater than that. But you sent a savior to die for our sins, to die for my sins. And now... Uh, we can look forward to eternity with you and with him. We pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that this would be the day that they come to him, that they would not wait until it's too late. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.